The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser and welcome to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Space is one of those topics that at least in theory unites Americans, but the devil is definitely in the details and the devil is certainly where we meet some of the issues that were recently uncovered in NASA's attempted launch of the nearly $4 billion Artemis rocket. To discuss Artemis and the attempt to once again get to the moon and beyond, we are joined by David Brown. David is an author, a regular clearance jobs contributor, and all around fantastic human being. So thank you so much, David, for being on the show to chat with me. Thank you very much for having me. So the first time that I actually learned about the SLS rocket, you can pretend that you can see my props, people, but the radio audience cannot, was actually while reading your book, The Mission, which was released in 2021, and I believe is now out in paperback. So if you were super excited about Artemis and are now disappointed, you will have time to read The Mission in between now and when it launches again, as I understand it, because I think it's going to be at least a month. So the book was about Europa, which is the smallest of like the four Galilean moons that are orbiting another planet, Jupiter, I believe, what is space. But it actually speaks a lot more broadly to our space program and how projects like SLS and Artemis come together. So talk a little bit about why SLS is in a book about Jupiter's moons, if you can, David. Well, one thing that I try to get across in the mission is that really... I see you waving my book at me. You know, just <laughs> pretend everybody you're missing out. It's a, it's a, it's got a great cover. The pages are so buttery soft. I think we talked about this last time we talked about your book, David. I'm a sucker for buttery soft book pages. I had them do that just for you. Thank you. The um, <laughs> one point that I try to get across in the mission is that although NASA has a great many missions that cover literally everywhere in the universe in one way or another, everything really is connected. In a lot of strange and sometimes unexpected ways, unexpected even for people who work for NASA and who launch these missions. In the case of SLS, this was a rocket whose lineage goes back to the George W. Bush administration. There was a program called Constellation, which you can think of as sort of a proto-Artemis. And the goal was to go to the moon and after that, go to Mars. It traces its lineage to an earlier program from George H.W. Bush, which was called the Space Exploration Initiative, whose goal was to build a space station in order to go to the moon and then go to Mars. And Artemis's job now is to build a new space station, one that orbits in cislunar space, in other words, that area between Earth and the moon. 
and go to the moon and then go to Mars. One problem that NASA runs into every time a new White House comes in, as soon as they need to find more money in the budget, the easiest thing to cut is space. And a lot of times that means going for things that are slightly less ambitious or perhaps missions that are on a much longer timeline. In other words, the president can give a great speech that says we're going to go to Mars. The, the unspoken part is in 30 years, which means you get to have the inspirational speech without finding a way to pay for it. In the case of SLS, when the Obama administration came in, they wanted to get rid of the Constellation program. They were not interested in this moon business. They were not interested in this Mars business. Obviously, defense contractors, aerospace contractors, and Marshall Space Flight Center in, in Huntsville, Alabama. They were very interested in preserving their rocket program. And there's a strong argument to be made that you know the defense industrial base depends on our ability to launch rockets, whether that's for communication satellites or intercontinental ballistic missiles. There was great pushback against the Obama administration who wanted to get rid of this constellation program and the idea of a big rocket to go to the moon. At the time, the Obama administration was dealing with sort of healthcare reform and nobody wanted to sacrifice political capital over a rocket. Sort of the big compromise that the Obama administration reached with Congress, Marshall Space Flight Center in, in Huntsville and the aerospace contractors was, we will give you your big giant government rocket. In exchange for that, we need money to seed the private sector with sort of startup funding to try to build their own commercial rockets so that rather than NASA owning the rockets, these companies are going to own rockets and NASA can use these companies sort of the way we use Uber, right? Someone else owns the car. We just call them when we need them. And now we have SLS. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's you recently unpacked that for an article for clearance jobs. And I loved the little I mean, I'm a total geek when it comes to stuff like this, but kind of the intersection between how Congress interplays with it and these government agencies and trying to get a project like this accomplished. Obviously, you've been to Cape Canaveral twice now to try to see this puppy launch potentially next month. We'll be there again. And it came down to hydrogen, which puts us back in the place of asking about the history lesson that you just gave us around this rocket and kind of the competition between, or is it competition? Are they friends? Are they enemies? Are they frenemies? Starship and Artemis, you can answer that question for me too, David. Hydrogen being an issue with SLS, can the government afford to like rethink its decision-making process around a rocket like this? Or at this point, we've just sunk so much money in, this is it, right? I just have many questions about that. Tell me what I need to know. So uh, each one of those taken apart would be a complicated question, but I'll sort of start with why is this rocket using hydrogen? And and in fact, uh, when you look at SLS, it's kind of interesting that primary fuel sources are hydrogen and oxygen. And after they ignite, what you're seeing that that sort of plume, what looks like smoke as the rocket launches into the air, if it ever launches into the air, is actually water vapor. That's just the hydrogen and oxygen reacting. Hydrogen has always been a notoriously finicky that's a nice way of putting it, fuel source for rockets for reasons that we've now seen with two scrubbed launches for Artemis 1. Basically, it leaks very easily. That's kind of the short version. Why are we using it? Well, the space shuttle used it. Was that a bad decision at the time? Yes, it was. So why, having made a bad decision once, are we making a bad decision again with Artemis? And the answer is, the Senate mandated to NASA that they reuse shuttle parts and shuttle technology and existing shuttle contracts whenever and wherever possible. You'll recall that the space shuttle program ended in 2011. The shuttle has a complicated legacy. On one hand, it's kind of like a flying Statue of Liberty. 
I mean, it is interesting. I think there was a quote that I saw. It was in Interesting Engineering by Lori Garver, who I was introduced to in the mission. I remember a little section because you did a great job of kind of introducing us to some of these very human characters and players within the space program and within Congress and Capitol Hill and government and how they all play together on getting anything involved in the space program. And I totally geek out on those stories. But her quote there was like, she kind of had pushed for some more private sector involvement in Artemis, but the forces of the government status quo were too strong. So the result was the rocket that you have, but you can tie it into a bigger picture conversation of saying like, we are doing this now to pave the way for a crude Artemis 2 mission. And if you look at the spend in the scope of all of that, still a lot, but we're making an investment in the future. Are we not, David? Is this how this works? To SpaceX, are they friends? Are they enemies? So technically, SpaceX is part of the Artemis program. SpaceX got the contract to build the lunar lander. If we want to look a little more at the history of the SLS program, right after the Obama administration made the compromise that said, okay, you'll get your big rocket. One reason why the Obama administration said, but we're not going to the moon, is not because they hated the moon. It's because we didn't have a lander and there was no money to build one. And really, everyone who had built lunar landers before is is dead or are nearly there. So the idea was, well, let's go to Mars. We don't have a Mars lander either, but hey, that's somebody else's problem, as I alluded to earlier. To circle back on a question that you'd asked earlier about why what Europa has to do with SLS, the answer is SLS needed a place to go, right? We weren't going to Mars for 20 years, but for some reason we were building a rocket now. We didn't have a lander to get to the moon, so we certainly weren't going there. Europa needed a rocket. Europa's a pretty heavy spacecraft. It's about the size of a, once its solar arrays unfold, it'll be about the size of a regulation basketball court. So a big rocket would be useful for that. And so those two missions really helped each other along. Again, everything's connected, right? So Europa had a rocket, a rocket had a destination, everybody won. And in fact, both projects were approved. Now, nobody, I think, who pays attention to any of this really thinks the SLS rocket is going to be the backbone of our exploration of the moon and of Mars. You'd mentioned earlier that the SLS rocket costs $4 billion. In fact, it costs $4 billion per launch. And this is not a reusable rocket. Every time we launch one of these $4 billion rockets, we drop it in the ocean at the end. In fact, it's cost about $25 billion to develop this rocket. Meanwhile, Starship, which is the enormous rocket, far more powerful than not only SLS, but in fact, than the Saturn V that put men on the moon, Starship will cost about $250 million per launch, and it's reusable. Well, and that has been an exciting thing about Artemis. As much as we hate to see kind of quote-unquote failures of the space program where we are all geared up for launch and ready, and then it doesn't happen, I think the excitement that we've seen around these launches shows that there is a lot of renewed interest in the space program, at least across, I mean, we're certainly talking to some extent to a federal audience here. So I saw my friends across federal government. Again, we don't have a lot to get excited about in government sometimes that's positive, but certainly a mission going to the moon, going to Mars is one of those things. That's actually a really good and nuanced point. If we look at SLS, so much of NASA is always not what it seems. The International Space Station is the greatest waste of money, perhaps, in the history of the United States. From the point of view of the International Space Station as an as a investment in learning Russian 
aerospace abilities, it was the deal of the century at, at $100 billion. When we look at SLS, $25 billion, it's an embarrassment of a, of a rocket. It's a colossal, colossal waste of money. However, here is where the point you make is very astute and where it might actually be itself quite a deal for the American taxpayer and certainly for the American space program. And that specifically is NASA repeatedly, as I mentioned before, has tried to get a moon mission going or to get a Mars mission going. And it has repeatedly failed. And one reason why it's failed all of these times is because there's been no sort of rally point. There's been no thing to go forward. We do very well when we have a thing to organize our forces. In this case, SLS sort of turned into that thing. It turned into the foundation of human spaceflight. Moreover, by having SLS, NASA was able to go to Europe and Japan and Canada and say, look, we're going to the moon. We have this big rocket and we're serious about it because we just spent $25 billion. What we need from you is serious buy-in. This is what NASA is saying. If we do this on our own, we're going to be canceled by the next president, undoubtedly. However, if we have 20 countries invested in this, each spending billions of dollars or the equivalent of billions of dollars to pull out of the Artemis program would be, in fact, international scandal on a, on a major scale. So SLS sort of turned into a battering ram. It's really pushed forward for the first time since the 1960s, our lunar aspirations. Now, we can argue whether going to the moon is even a worthy target. I personally would say we should be going to Mars instead. But the fact that NASA is finally leaving low Earth orbit, finally leaving the International Space Station, it'll still be there, but we're going to go a little bit higher than that. That's no small achievement. And with the international buy-in, the goal is to make it a lot cheaper to build a permanent base on the moon. I mean, that's the sort of thing we'll see in the next, say, 20 or 30 years. I mean, hopefully concurrently we're seeing, you know, an American flag planet on Mars. I mean, the notion of having a moon base that is... 24-7, seven, seven days a week, 365 days a year, just as we have with the International Space Station. is nothing short of I mean, almost miraculous. If you were an 18-year-old kid or a soldier, right? I mean, 18's a pretty, 18's an adult. You've never known one day of your life where human beings were confined only to Earth. There's always been at least one human being on the International Space Station. And now we're going to be multi-planetary with a sort of a similar setup on the moon. That's pretty exciting to me. It really is something to be excited about because one problem that NASA always has is everything it does is long-term. NASA just doesn't do anything that you, you say yes this year and then next year it launches. That never happens. And so there's not a lot of motivation for a president to seriously invest in any major program because he and maybe one day she will be out of office long before sort of any of the goodies come their way, any of the accolades, any of the, the president calling the astronauts on the moon. So for this program to survive is very exciting because it means at this point that it's going to survive whoever the next president is and very likely the president after that. I mean, this thing is actually happening. That's crazy. I've been waiting for this my entire life. NASA has not landed or soft landed an atom on the moon since 1972. You know, that's the sort of thing that we're going to see in the next, you know, next five to 10 years. What's it been like, like on the ground and then to have it not happen? Is that just like a crushing? I'm just curious about that. When you're covering these launches from Cape Canaveral, most members of the press corps who were there usually done this for a few years. It's a pretty sweet deal for something as big as SLS. I have not encountered a rocket this powerful in my career. 
nobody has or, or very few people have the the shuttle was very powerful but sls should be more powerful than the shuttle so when it when it actually launches it's going to be a situation where you see it like you see it light up then you hear it rumble very loudly and then you're going to feel it and like the the coins in your pocket are going to start rattling together like it's serious business we'll get our chance well if you're again if you are listening and you are just super disappointed that you did not get to see the artemis launch probably most of us like me from the comfort of our living rooms and laptops you can certainly pick up david brown's the mission available on paperback now and you can walk through the whole process and it is like i mean if you're if you geek out on stuff like this the intersection of government and congress and decision making and the budgets behind it but you also just kind of love the space program i mean the mission is a great book because it unpacks all of that and a lot of the personal stories behind it so thank you so much david for being on the show and chatting with me today thank you very much for having me Attorney advertisement, not a guarantee or warranty of results. I'm attorney Sean Bigley. The denial or revocation of your security clearance is a devastating blow, but effective legal representation can make a difference. Contact my team at Bigley Ranish LLP for a free case evaluation. Find us online at biglylaw.com. Federal security clearances are all we do. Welcome back. I am attorney Sean Bigley, and I'm here with my co-host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. We're talking this segment about foreign passports and dual citizenship. Can I or can't I? Now, Lindy, I know this is something that comes up all the time on the discussion boards at clearance jobs, but we also see it routinely in our practice defending security clearance holders when these issues come up, it really strikes at a, a deeply rooted fear for a lot of people. And that is, I've been here for decades. I'm naturalized. I am an American citizen uh, through and through, but I wasn't born here. And am I going to be forever tainted or somehow labeled as an outsider in the national security community because of that? How do I address that and and overcome that hurdle. And I definitely get the anxiety that that causes. The first thing that we should say is anytime these issues come up in, in what's called foreign influence or foreign preference cases, it's not supposed to be a commentary on the individual's patriotism or lack thereof. It's really supposed to be, are there external factors that create a security risk because of this person's ties to a foreign country? In the case of foreign influence, uh, in the case of foreign or in preference, if you are doing something that demonstrates objectively some affinity for a foreign government, that may be different. But those cases are much more rare. I know it's hard to not take these things personally, but at the end of the day, you know, it is not supposed to be that sort of a thing. It's supposed to be an objective analysis of outside pressures. Nonetheless, when we're talking about dual citizenship and passports, there are some very clear security issues that are raised. The biggest one really is if you have a foreign passport and you are traveling about using that passport to enter and exit countries, the the U.S. government doesn't really have a great way to keep tabs on where you are and what you're doing. And as a clearance holder, they like to be able to have that capability. So if you're traveling on a U.S. passport, it's a little bit easier for them to do that. There is a a policy in place that says, you know, as a clearance holder, you are prohibited from entering or exiting the United States on a foreign passport. You have to use your U.S. passport when coming or going. But that policy actually does not extend to overseas travel. So 
you know, clearance holders with a foreign passport, take note, if for whatever reason you are traveling overseas and, for example, are going into a country that only allows you admission based on uh, having uh, their passport, if you were born there, that's something we see in, in a handful of countries, Israel, Colombia, a handful of other ones. That's okay. That's not going to be a problem for you in most cases. Similarly, if you are going overseas and you can say, for example, uh, you know, I'm going to country A or B and I would have to get a visa if I was going on my U.S. passport. So it's just a lot more convenient to go on my foreign passport. That's also generally not a problem. As long as there's a reason that you can articulate, usually not a big deal. But what is a problem is entering or exiting the United States on that foreign passport. But this is very different than the situation that existed up until about 2017, I believe, was when the policy changed. And do you remember, Lindy, prior to 2017, there was a policy in place at the Defense Department that prohibited clearance holders from having a foreign passport. And I think we got a lot of questions, if memory serves me, uh, back then about that issue. Do you recall that? Oh, yeah. I mean, and I think this just goes to show how the security clearance process works is one of the most common pitfalls becomes when these policies change. It continues to create a lot of legacy issues for individuals, in part sometimes too, because kind of the government is is sometimes changing things in one iteration. The intelligence community sometimes has policies that are slightly different than the 95% of folks who are with DOD or other agencies. We definitely saw that with passports. So for the DOD, DOD industry folks had this policy of like surrendering your passport and like rescinding your citizenship, which kind of became an issue too. Like, hey, hey, foreign country, I'm probably working for the intelligence community now because I'm, you know, we got, you had people just doing kind of a lot of wonky things around their dual citizenship, kind of renouncing that citizenship in order to work for the government, turning in their passports to their security officers. And then security officers had these desk drawers of passports, which seemed super not like the most secure system. And I think that's why we still get a lot of questions about it now, because it's fairly recently that that policy changed. And they said, mm, no, actually, you don't need to rescind your citizenship. You don't need to turn in your passport to your security officer. You just need to not take advantage of the benefits of citizenship. And so, and I haven't seen cases of individuals. I, I see a lot of cases of questions about it still. So folks wondering if that's still the case, folks mistakenly trying to turn in their passport to their security officer and then a back and forth around that. I haven't seen any issues around individuals mistakenly taking advantage of their foreign citizenship or using their passport after holding a security clearance. I don't know if you have any examples of that. Is that something that does happen still? So now you don't have to turn in your passport. Does that become an issue? Some folks on the other end don't even realize that they shouldn't still travel with it or take advantage of their citizenship. Not super common, but the, the times these things come up is typically when, for example, somebody uses the foreign passport to vote in a foreign country that can raise foreign preference concerns or if they're using it to secure some sort of benefit from a foreign government, uh, an educational benefit or healthcare, you know, something like that, or they are, you know, using it uh, for any other reason that would potentially lead a, a reasonable observer to believe that they're availing themselves of some benefit of the citizenship. Now, mere travel on that passport overseas, not entering or exiting the United States, that is not supposed to be an issue anymore. You know, arguably, yes, that's a benefit of foreign citizenship, but it's not really treated as such, at least under current policy. There are other things that are considered benefits. When we talk about foreign passports, sometimes people confuse that with uh, dual citizenship. And if you have a foreign passport, you do have the citizenship of that country 
But at the same time, if you have dual citizenship, you know, not everybody who has dual citizenship has a foreign passport. So having a foreign passport, yes, clear indication that you have foreign citizenship or dual citizenship. But just because you don't have a foreign passport, don't assume that you no longer hold the foreign citizenship. That is something actually that we see probably more often than any of the other things that we're talking about where somebody says, oh, I surrendered or had my passport destroyed under the old policy. So I don't have my, you know, whatever country citizenship anymore. And we have to say to them, well, that's not quite accurate. You need to probably go and research and find out what that country's law is as it pertains to dual citizenship. There are some countries that don't allow it. There's a small handful, I think India being one of them, where you know by law, if you are naturalized in another country, you automatically lose the citizenship. So that makes it real easy. But the vast majority of countries do not have a provision like that. There are some, including Iran, most notably, that generally do not allow people to renounce their citizenship at all. So just because you've, you know, put that foreign passport through the shredder or surrendered it to a security officer or even signed something that was provided to you by your security officer, we've seen that come up too. Well-meaning security officers who, you know, type something up that says, I, you know, John Smith hereby renounce my Iranian citizenship. Well, that's not going to cut it. I mean, just because you're saying that you are renouncing it, 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 it takes more than that. It's renunciation is a legal act. It's not just a verbal declaration. Bottom line, if you have any confusion on that and you're not sure if you have foreign citizenship, the best place to find answers is your country of origins, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, their equivalent of the State Department. But to be clear, you should not be contacting them. I'm talking about you know going online, looking at publicly available websites, seeing if you can figure out what that country's law and requirements are for renouncing the citizenship. And if ultimately you choose to... St- you know, to do that and you choose to actually renounce the citizenship, you know, there's no prohibition against doing that. There's also no requirement to do that. As you point out, you know, sometimes it can raise counterintelligence issues because in many cases, the the foreign country will know or at least suspect the reason why you're doing it. But that's an individual decision that should be made in consultation potentially with your security officials. Yeah, you're right, Lindy. These things change, they evolve, and the legacy now outdated policies do create a lot of questions and misinterpretations for folks. Hopefully, the the takeaway for anybody listening here is that old policy that prohibited clearance holder from having a foreign passport in most cases, that is null and void. You can't have the foreign passport now. You just can't enter or exit the United States on it. You can't use it to do anything that would indicate a foreign preference, like voting in a foreign country or seeking benefits from a foreign government. As far as the dual citizenship piece of it, I would just caution folks, you know, if you are thinking about going out and applying for dual citizenship, I would really recommend against that. That is an action that can raise foreign preference concerns. If you have it already, you've had it since birth or since childhood, that is not something that typically would raise foreign preference concerns. So these are all, you know, kind of nuanced situations, sometimes a little complicated. When in doubt, seek out competent advice. It's always a good way to end these, Sean. When in doubt, seek competent legal counsel for your dual citizenship issues. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. 
Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.